You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? If you think about it, that's an interesting question because based on your stage of life, you might answer that different. You know, a baby is looking for their pacifier crawling across the floor and college students looking for a job and all the parents said, amen. And then there's, uh, you know, people that are at another stage, the second half of your life, you're looking, does any of this matter? You're looking for significance. And so what are you looking for? And also, it depends on who asks you that question. So I realize we're at church and I'm a pastor and so, Jesus, I'm looking for Jesus. I know, I got it. But if you were at, I don't know, the grocery store, if you were shopping, if you're, you know, when I go shopping, I'm an extrovert. I like talking to people. But when a salesperson comes up to me, says, what are you looking for? I'm just looking, head down. And by that I mean, don't try to trick me into buying something I don't need. I'm completely capable of doing that on my own. See my Amazon account, late night orders. When you go to the grocery store, what are you looking for? I know my wife is a sweet woman. She's here in the service. And I think sometimes, though, she does things to make herself laugh like no one else knows. Even though she's pranking me, I think she's thinking, how long will this one take them? As she makes up the ingredient that she needs for whatever she's making. Can you stop and get some cinnamon, cayenne, sriracha? Make sure it's organic. Huh? Sure. A couple laps around Harris Teeter. And unlike when a salesperson comes up to me, I'm looking at anybody that will make eye contact with me. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know where this is? Some little kid eating animal crackers. I'm like, hey, your mom's getting cereal. Do you know where the... What are you looking for? remember when we were on our honeymoon, we went to Jamaica. And there were markets there where they're negotiating and selling souvenirs, little crafts and t-shirts and all those kinds of things and it was not uncommon I was walking with my wife and I say hey, pretty lady she's talking to her and I mean and uh do you want to buy a t-shirt and I remember one time going no no t-shirt and he, then the guy said marijuana heroin and I was like you think I don't want a t-shirt but I'd like a life-altering addiction please and I was like so if a drug lord asks a little different than a salesperson and your pastor and what are you looking for so different areas of life. Your boss asks you, what are you looking for? Parents ask you, kids, what are you looking for? We've been looking at these statements that Jesus makes on the cross. The one he makes today, I think, answers the question that we all have in our hearts. Now, I don't know every person that's here today. I don't know where you're at with Jesus. I know that we have people who attend our church who are in love with Jesus, they're passionate about Jesus. I know we have people that attend our church that don't believe in God at all. Some come because their spouse wants them to come. Some are investigating. Some want to make sure they're accurate in the way that they critique. But the Bible says we all have eternity purposed in our hearts. You were made that way. Whether you're a materialist, a hedonist, a pagan, a Protestant, whatever, some blend of those. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity there. There is a longing for more than what this place has. And we all ask similar questions. And today we're going to hit on some of those questions, but I, th- I think that what Jesus is revealing to us is the answer to some of those questions we're asking. It's the very last moments of his life that we're looking at today. We've looked at these seven statements. We're looking at the last one right now. After he says it is finished, which we haven't looked at yet, he breathes his last breath. We've said the last words are lasting words. Let's look at them. Luke chapter 23 
looking specifically at verse 46. The verses will be on the screen, but it's good to bring your Bible, uh, then you'll know whether what I'm saying I'm twisting based on its original context or not. You should always do that with anybody that's speaking, this stage, any other stage. Uh, bring a copy of the scriptures. You can get them on your phone. We have an app. There are different apps, a Bible app that you can use. Uh, Luke chapter 23, to give you some context, I'll start reading in verse 44, but the bigger context is that Jesus has been betrayed by his friend Judas. No one's taking his life. He's decided to lay it down. The only accusation that's valid that's made against him is that he claims to be God. And he says, yep, but they hadn't considered, what if he's right? So they bring other things against him. He's found innocent on all of them by multiple people. The Jews hand him over. The Romans try him. The reason the Jews don't kill him is they don't have authority to do that. The Jews would kill people by stoning. The Romans would crucify people. Lots of people have been crucified. Many of them, it takes days for them to die. And it's slow and terrible. Jesus is on the cross for six hours, two feet above the ground. He says seven statements. Six hours, two feet, seven words that literally shake the earth. Have they shaken yours? We've already looked at them, say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we saw his scandalous grace when he said to the thief next to him, who had never been baptized, perhaps didn't even know a single verse in the Bible, today you'll be with me in paradise. Last week, the question why? Why evil? Why do I feel alone? And we saw that he enters the evil. He becomes, he exchanges the evil. He becomes sin. He becomes evil. And he exalts himself through evil. And this week, a statement that probably came moments after that one. Let's look at it. I'll start reading verse 44. Uh, It was about the sixth hour, which we know as noon, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. What was that? And people talking to me about that after the first service. One person saying, it couldn't have been an eclipse because of the time of the year. I was like, well, God took a star and had it go to a house where Jesus was at. And so I think he could do whatever he wants, really. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say God could have put his hand in front of the sun. I don't know what happened here. But it's not normal to be dark for three hours. And it was, but it wasn't just physical darkness. Everybody's rejecting him. He's becoming becoming the sin of the world. Well, the sunlight failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, hmm, the last statement was, my God, my God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he died. He breathes his last. That's the way that Luke says it. We said in this series, last words are lasting words. And I've talked to you about famous people, you know, Winston Churchill's of the world and Charles Stanley's, and what were their last words? I've even gotten personal. I told you about my last conversation with my dad last week, and we talked about different last words of people dying. But I haven't told you about one person that's been murdered yet. I haven't said anything about people that are, that's what's happening to Jesus. He's being murdered. And so, what are some famous last words of that? There's, there's one gentleman, uh, you'd be benefit to read some of his life stories. His name's Hugh Lattimore. He was a reformer, and that means he was part of the Reformation that happened in the early 1500s. The Reformation, without getting into a big history lesson, was essentially the church was corrupt, and there were people that worked in the church that started saying, this is corrupt. The church at that time, um, living in uh, the, basically Europe and any of those places, the only church was the Catholic church. And they said the Pope was the authority. And there were some guys that were going, I, that's not in the Bible. 
And then they started saying, you know what? We should give everybody a Bible in the language they can understand. Church didn't like that. <laughs> then we don't have all the power. We don't have all the control. That's why you should have your Bible. You test and see what's being said. People can twist it to say different things. But the big sticking point was this. The church was saying that you actually got to heaven by believing in Jesus in some formula of good works that they made up. That's not what the Bible says. The people that were studying the Bible were going, but it, it says it's just by Jesus, that Jesus did all the work, that we need to place our faith in Jesus, and then he doesn't work in us, and there are works, but that's not how we get to heaven, and the church didn't like that, and Hugh Lattimore was a guy who was teaching that. He had been a priest, and then he started teaching that, and he was teaching it in Oxford, and there are three martyrs, they called their Oxford Three. Two of them died the same day. Because they were on trial and basically said, are you teaching this? Nope, I'm teaching this. Do you want to recant? Nope. Okay, we're going to kill you. We're going to burn you alive. His last words are powerful last words. I think we have them to put up on the screen. But he strapped back to back with a, another gentleman. His name is Ridley. And he says this, be of good comfort. <laughs> Wait, we're about to be burned to death. Be comfortable. No, be, just relax, Brother Ridley. And play the man. He's saying, be courageous. But then he tells him why. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. This is about more than us. This is bigger. And God's going to use this. Oh, if we all had that perspective on our lives all the time, how would it change us? Powerful words. And then history tells us that he repeatedly cried out as he was burning to death, Father, receive my spirit. Hmm, he's quoting our Lord. Jesus here is quoting David from Psalm 31. Uh, if you've got your Bibles and you think that you're really bored right now or you think I will be in a couple minutes, turn to Psalm 31, read the whole thing. We don't have time to do that together. But in verse 5, it says, David is being pursued by probably his son, but certainly by enemies. His son Absalom tries to take his throne. If you really dig into the story, you'll find out it's because David, while he was a great warrior and great a lot of stuff, he was really passive in his home. And he didn't deal with the sin of his kids. And so one of his kids raises up and starts to try and steal his kingdom. His name's Absalom. David flees out into the desert, and this is probably one of the Psalms that he writes. He says, my enemies are all around me. People are slandering me. All this stuff's happening. And it's a psalm of deliverance where he's crying out to God, deliver me. Interesting that Jesus, he knows he's going to die, but he quotes this. Verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then verse 15, my times are in your hands. Interesting. I think Jesus' cry here as we unpack it, we're going to see, answers the questions that we have, the eternal questions in our hearts. And the first one is, we all want security. So Christian, not a Christian, people come to the same conclusion, Maslow's hierarchy, food, water, air, next, security, safety. You can debate that hierarchy, is it different, is it this? One of the foundational things that we want is security, and here's what we see from the cross. Security, the security that you seek is found in God's hands. Jesus is showing us that when he cries out here. He's surrounded, verse 44, it's dark for three hours. We talked a lot last week about that physical darkness. Everybody there is rejecting him. His, the, his friends, his closest friends, yeah, Judas betrayed him. The rest of them, they ditched. They're gone. The people that a few days earlier were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, are mocking him, saying, you saved others, save yourself. And he has the ability to save himself, but if he saves himself, he won't save others. Hmm. 
Everything around him, he's surrounded by darkness. And all this, I don't know what shows you watch. I know some of you probably don't watch any shows. Just more time with Jesus. The rest of us, anybody here watch police shows, crime shows, any of that kind of thing? All right, some of you acknowledge that. I'm not going to get you, don't worry. You've probably seen the scene before where some bad guy's being chased, doesn't matter which show. He gets cornered, or maybe he's robbing a bank and he's holding a bunch of people in there, so he's trapped in there. The SWAT team is everywhere. They're up on buildings. There's a helicopter above. There's police, everybody's behind a police car door with their gun pointed at the same spot. And then the captain or some, the star of the show, who's really handsome, by the way, comes up and he grabs a megaphone. Come out with your hands up. We've got you surrounded. What are they saying? Why hands up? Hands up, because they want to know you don't have a weapon in your hand. You're surrendering. You're not going to resist. And surrounded, they're communicating, you have no other option. We've got you. Here, Jesus is surrounded by darkness, and he surrendered, but not to evil. His hands aren't up. They're out, pierced by nails. Isaiah 49, 16 says that we are engraved on his hands. And here Jesus, whose hands are nailed to a cross, knows that he's dying, isn't saying, can you stop this from happening? Father, into your hands. That's where security's found. I try to imagine, like, what it would be like to have been there when Hugh Lattimore was being burned at the stake. I've talked with different pastor friends. I know there's, there are pastors that are actually scared to read parts of the Bible. Bible, just reading the Bible. Not only have to commentate on it, just read it. Because they're going to lose their tax-exempt status. We're going to hate crime. If you call something sin that the world doesn't call sin, homosexuality is the one that's usually the thing, or if you talk about and a man should be a man, any of that kind of stuff that the Bible's real clear about, you're a hate monger, you're whatever the society has decided, and so we can't say those things, can't say what the Bible says, that's a problem. And you're worried about taxes? <laughs> he was being burned alive. He said, Jesus is the only way. Hmm. I don't think we're ready for persecution. Unless the point of it is to cleanse a lot of people that aren't really followers anyways out of the church. So to be there when Hugh Latimer says, play the man. Step up. Be courageous. This is about more than us. That's what he's saying. And then, receive my spirit. But to be there when Jesus is on the cross, can you imagine darkness covering the earth? The only person there that's confessing him while other people are mocking him is this thief. We'll see next week his mom and John come close to the cross. But they're not saying these words. They're not. Feels like, I say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talk about it shook the earth. Let me read you Matthew's version of it. Maybe I'll do this for Easter next year. None of you will come. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Listen. It's weird. I don't know how more Christian fiction hasn't been written out of Matthew 27. Listen to this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Okay, that's his version of what we just read in Luke. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We talk about this because it's talking about getting access to God. And we'll talk about how thick the curtain was and how big it was and all that stuff. But the next part is weird. And the earth shook... And the rocks were split. The tombs also were open. Okay. But look at this. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that means they were dead, were raised. Whoa. 
I don't think we're supposed to watch these kind of movies. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Can you imagine if you had somebody that you knew that was like dead for 20 years, knocked on your, hey, I'm back. How do we not... How do they not all become believers? They said, if you just show us a sign, then we'll believe. Jesus knows that's not true. It's the same as some of you are atheists, and when we have a one-on-one conversation, and you ask me your hard questions, I say, listen, I'll talk to you about all this stuff, but if I answer them all, then will you believe? The honest answer is no. Because your heart is hardened, your eyes are darkened, you're blind spiritually, and you can't see unless God does a miracle. And that's why all of Jerusalem didn't believe. They had the facts, they had the information, all the evidence was there. But to the ones who did, I think he's equipping them here. He's surrounded by darkness. Everything's evil. And I don't think I need to convince you that our world is dark. I know that some of us, we get in our routines and we just drive into the car and close the garage and turn on Netflix and watch happy shows. And I think every day I went home this week, turned the news on, and there was a different tragedy being reported. Last Sunday, I think when I turned the news on right after church, it was a woman on Friday night, had a wedding. See this, Samantha Miller. In South Carolina, Folly Beach, five hours after she makes her vows to her husband, she's killed by a drunk driver. He's riding a golf cart with her new husband, and they pulled out of where the wedding reception was at with about three other friends, and the golf cart got hit. It was in a 25-mile-hour zone. It was going 65, threw it 100 yards. The husband didn't die but had um, broken skull and various surgeries, and mom in the news said, he was giving his vows five hours ago and now they just handed me his ring in a plastic bag. Can you imagine that man being asked, have you ever been married? For a few hours. I was told by somebody after the first service who works in this industry that there was a, a man on 440 who was working, um, connecting a loop, doing some asphalt for a local company and he was hit. Apparently by a drunk driver, the news report didn't say for sure and he died. 40-something years old, four kids. That's here in our community. And there's shootings. I came home last night. I was at a soccer game for one of my kids and turned the news on. There's another shooting. And there was the shooting in Serbia, which some of you didn't see. In elementary school, a 13-year-old went into a school, shot the security guard, shot eight kids, then called the police on himself, killed nine people. Just sat there and waited for the police to come get him. Like it's another day. It's dark. It's dangerous. More slaves in the world today than ever before. Estimates are 40 million. And North Carolina, by the way, is one of the top 10 states in our country for human trafficking. But we don't pay attention to that. It's dark, it's dangerous. Systematically killing a generation of people, 60 million people since Roe versus Wade. And there's progress legally and politically. Don't forget those are image bearers, those are real lives. This isn't a political conversation. We should fight politically, but this isn't a legal matter. Image bearers dangerous place shouldn't be the womb. It's dark. But then out here, the danger here, it's all around. So I want to ask you this question. What do you think is the most secure place in the world? Like if you were going to protect yourself from everything else, what's the most apocalyptic, terror? like whatever's the craziest movie you've ever seen, aliens, nuclear bomb, whatever happens, where's the safest place? And so you think, what's security? Alarm? Some of you are art people, so it depends on who I'm asking how you're going to answer that, right? Like if you're an art person, you're like the Mona Lisa. It's the most famous painting. It's worth about a billion dollars. I looked up the security. They won't tell you. That's part of the security. 
got bulletproof glass and laser alarms and all, but they don't tell you all the stuff. Maybe a vault for a big diamond, the Hope Diamonds at the Smithsonian, or there's other diamonds out there. Like, it depends on what you're into, what you're interested in. You might know different places, a big vault, a safe room, a bomb shelter. Did you know there's a place in Colorado that the U.S. government built in the 60s? It's still there. It's been updated. called Cheyenne Mountain. It's 2,000 feet into a mountain, and it's designed to be hit and be able to absorb a direct hit of a nuclear missile. Is that the safest place? I'll read you some facts about it. Got here. They probably don't tell us everything, again. (laughs) But it's built 2,000 feet inside a mountain, covers an area of approximately five acres. The facility was designed to be highly secure. It's protected by a 25-ton blast door, 25-ton blast door, and 1,000 feet of granite. Whoa, so it's got the door and 1,000 feet of granite. You're not getting in unless we want you in. (laughs) It was built in the 60s at a cost of approximately $142 million. That's equivalent to $1 billion today. The complex was originally designed to withstand a direct nuclear strike and was equipped with an air filtration systems, backup generators, other infrastructure to support its inhabitants in the event of a nuclear war. That's the place to be. It was upgraded in the 90s. It's now designed also to be able to handle any, if a, there was an electromagnetic pulse and everybody couldn't use anything electronic, they'd still be running their generators and having clean air. And is that the safest place to be? Now, some people are afraid right now of AI, that it's going to become smarter than us and take over the world. So this week, I did an experiment. I thought, is it smarter than us? And I said, chat GPT, would it be safe for me to live at Cheyenne Mountain? And the ChatGPT said, you're not allowed to live there. (laughs) Authorized personnel only. But, ChatGPT, if I were able to live there, would it be safe? Listen to its response. Is it smarter than us? That's my question. While living in Cheyenne Mountain Complex would likely provide a high level of physical security, huh, you're nuanced? It's important to consider the potential psychological and social impacts of living in such a confined and isolated environment for an extended period of time. Additionally, the complex is not designed to provide complete protection from every potential threat or danger, so it's important to maintain a realistic perspective on its capabilities. Psychological and physical isolation, that would be a problem. Potential health risks of living in such close proximity with other people. Security breaches, not everyone there could necessarily be trusted. Oh, wow, whoa. Natural disasters such as earthquakes or wildfires were not part of the design. Ah, if that place ain't safe, what's safe? Hopefully you've got an image in your mind. (laughs) You live in this place. It's broken. You are promised by Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. The safest place in the world is in God's hands. But if you're thinking, you're thinking, you're going, but Jesus is being crucified. That's pretty horrible. He was flogged. 60% of people die from that. He's being crucified. That doesn't sound pleasant. That doesn't sound like safety to me. Oh. But remember last week we talked about God enters into the evil, into the darkness. When he's surrendering, he's not surrendering to what he's surrounded by, the sin. He's actually becoming that sin. And he could wipe out his enemies that are mocking him and saying, you saved others, save yourself. But he's actually dying for his enemies while we were still sinners, enemies of God. Christ died for us, that's Romans 5.8. But here he cries out David's cry from the psalm, 
my times are in your hands. But don't forget, this isn't like some end-of-life negotiation and finally he's surrendering. Like there's been this big battle. Many of us, that's, that's our life experience. It's like flesh and spirit, good and bad, and we've got this wrestling match. And Jesus was tempted in every way just as you were tempted. But John tells us in John chapter 8, he says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I've been doing it my whole life. He knows the reason why he came was to die. No one takes his life, he lays it down. In fact, the voice that's used here of him yielding and committing and the very word that's used for commitment shows this is his intention. Some people hung on crosses for seven days before they died of exhaustion, dehydration. I don't know if you've been there when anyone dies, they don't cry out in a loud voice. Life leaves them. It grows more and more faint. The fact that Jesus cries out in a loud voice, he willingly commits after six hours. He's actively, even in the chaos, all the darkness, all the sin, in control, willingly laying his life down. But was it a struggle? Yeah, that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there any other way? It's real temptations, real battles, always in God's hands. Can bad stuff happen? Yeah. But last week when we were talking about the why questions, one of the passages I shared with you is in Job. And I've said this lots of times throughout the years. The problem for Job is Job didn't get to read Job. Because he was living it like we are our lives. In the first five verses, he's living that. Verses 6 through 12, he's not, he doesn't even know that's happening. It's a spiritual battle taking place, a conversation between God and Satan. And Satan says, have you considered your servant Job? And he says, he only follows you because you do good stuff for him but let me have them. But do you know what God says next? Okay. But there's parameters, which shows us God's not the author of this evil, but he's got authority over the evil one. Why does Satan submit? He has to. Because God's all-powerful. He said, you can't do these things. And he knew Job's heart, and it wasn't because he was punishing Job's sin, which is oftentimes, don't ever, don't put like verses from Job that you haven't read the full context of in your Christmas cards. That'll go bad. His friends are idiots. The Bible says that. Read the whole book, and then if you think I didn't, go ahead. They say some dumb stuff to them because they think they know. They don't know because they don't know about verses 6 through 12. There's something more happening here, but what we learn from verses 6 through 12 is that nothing comes into your life if you're a follower of Jesus that hasn't passed through the loving hands of your father. Romans 8, 28 says it like this. For those who love God, only those who love God, this is a promise. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not a promise for you. Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love God. It's a conditional promise. For those who love God, do you love him? The safest place you can be. That's where Jesus says in this passage, my times are in your hands. My spirit is in your hands. I commit it to your hands. This is not new He's saying this at the end as he fulfills the plan, which leads us to our next point. It's in his hands that we find significance. The significance you're seeking is found in his hands. Jesus knows he's completing the plan when he says this. Like, commit my spirit into your hands. See, David, when he cries out in Psalm 31, he doesn't know how it's going to go. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to raise from the dead three days later. We know that because he told his friends that that was going to happen. But he's not crying out for deliverance like, help me get off this cross now. No. He's doing this for your deliverance. So he's not crying to be delivered. 
crying out as he delivers you. And he's pointing us to the most significant place you can be is doing what God calls you to do. God purposed eternity in our hearts, yes. But the problem, the temptation for us, and that we all want significance, is that we'll settle for temporary satisfaction. We'll settle for temporary significance. We'll settle for temporary security. And so what we do is we look for things in this world, money, power, a position, some life goal, family, getting somebody to like us, likes on social media. There's all kinds of things. And we think, if I just had that, then I would matter. And it doesn't matter gender, race, position. If you live in a third world country and you've never been on the internet or if you're here today and you work in the tech industry, we all want to matter. Problem is we seek temporary things. And it's not wrong to save money. In fact, it's wise. It's not wrong for you to have insurance. In fact, it's wise. It's not wrong for you to have an education. But if you think those things are what make you significant, you're wrong. And it's actually sinful. And the real danger is this, is that many of us think, well, I prayed a prayer, I did this thing, but I'm going to live my whole life for right here and think that that works out. Unfortunately, here's how this actually works. When you try to feed an eternal hunger with temporary stuff, you're going down a path of eternal emptiness. You think it's going to be fulfillment, but it's not. I'll quote to you a philosopher. Um, she goes by the name of Beyonce. And um, some of you have heard of her. She's got, she's got a lot of money. <clears throat> she says that she's grateful for all the money, but it will not fulfill her. Hmm. The things you own end up owning you. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt wrote a commentary on the book of Judges. Hmm. Who knew that? I didn't see that when we were going through Judges. We think that the stuff is going to fulfill us and it will not. But God has a plan for your life. And all of us are tempted by the temporary. So was Jesus. I made mention of that. You know the problem is when we talk about Jesus' temptation, is that pastors will say, Jesus is tempted in every way as you are tempted, but we don't get gritty, we don't get into it, we don't start talking about what that means, and we think, yeah, I mean, probably once or twice Jesus didn't want to read the Bible, but then he did, and so he worked out. Some of you are addicted to pornography. Jesus was tempted to lust. Some of you are thinking about taking your own life. Jesus was tempted to do that. In fact, we see it in the Bible. Some of you want to take shortcuts. To get to where God wants you, Jesus was tempted with that. Matthew chapter four, we see he's tempted to meet a real genuine desire in a not God way. Turn these stones to bread. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. We have more temptations than these uh, that we're not told about. We know that because he was tempted for 40 days and we're only told about three. This is the type of temptation he was being given, these whispers and moments of weakness. Throw yourself from the top of this building and if God loves you he's going to save you he'll send his angels Satan twisting scripture hmm. prove yourself Jesus not to prove himself some of us haven't quite gotten to that point yet where we realize you're not, you're not proving yourself hmm. it's an attempt don't test God he says back to Satan you've got to know the Bible there's a lot more temptations coming at us in the days ahead new technology, new ways of thinking. But if you know the Bible, you filter those things through that, 
Don't worry about every fad. We still need real relationships. We still have the same needs, security, significance, same needs. So what does the Bible say? God's got a plan for you. Jesus knew there was a plan. The last temptation, be a king without the cross. Bow down and worship me, Satan said to Jesus. And you think, oh, that's ridiculous. Jesus would be. All these kingdoms will be yours. You just don't have to go to the cross. In fact, you won't be able to because you'll be sinful and you won't be able to die for everyone else's sins. See, Jesus knew the plan and so he stayed on God's path. When you know the plan, it's a whole lot easier to stay on the path. When you don't know the plan, it's a whole lot more difficult to stay on the path because there's a lot of distractions. I know in my own day, and when I have an agenda for the day, I know these things I have to get done. But if I just go into a day, I'm like, oh, let's just see what happens. Then it's whatever pops up. But it's hard even when you're on the plan sometimes. All right, I gotta, gotta clear out the inbox of email. But you know what? There's some funny me. I'm just gonna watch one YouTube video <laughs> two hours later. But you know the biggest yarn in the world? You've got that down? The best piano player in the world, who's memorized the most numbers, like whatever stuff. You just went down this trail, learned all these things, and oh, by the way, you saw a meme, and you got to send it to your mom, because next week's Mother's Day, public service, by the way, next week is Mother's Day, and so now you're shopping, and you're buying something, put it in the cart, but I'll go back later, and blah, 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 blah. end of the day, same amount of emails. <laughs> Funny at work, but in your life, do you know the plan? God's clear that he has a plan for you. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, Jeremiah 29, 11. But wait, there's harm. Ephesians 2, 10, before the beginning of time, you are God, talk about Mona Lisa, you are God's masterpiece. And he, he's got good works for you to do. Psalm 139, before you breathed a breath, took a step, God had every day of your life written down. So what's the plan? Well, why are you here? You gotta know your Why? Simon Sinek gave a famous TED Talk one time. Start with the why. In it, it was pretty low tech. That's why I have this chart up here. Some of you have been wondering the whole time, why does it got that thing up there? Got slides. And he just drew out this little thing and like 60 million people watched this talk. And he just stood there and he was like, hey, I was studying leaders and companies and there's a difference between the ones that are innovative and oftentimes highly successful and the other people that are in the same exact context, in the same exact situation, with often the same resources, sometimes less, right, brothers? And why are some so motivational? Why are some so inspirational? Why does some change the world? And he talked about Martin Luther King, and he talked about the Wright brothers. He talked about Apple. Apple's an easy one to identify with, so he spent a lot of time there. And he said, you know, Apple, all they, really, all they do is they sell computers, and most companies know what they do. He said, if Apple were like other companies and they wanted to just sell you a computer, they'd say, hey, we make sleek computers and they're designed really nice and here's the technology and some people have better technology than us, but this is what we make and do you want one? And some people might decide to buy that. And he said, and some companies know how they do stuff and there's unique patents and certain formulas that some people use. And he goes, but few know why they do it. But the people and the companies that start with the why and then eventually get to the what are the ones that change the world. And he talked about Martin Luther King and he talked about Apple and he said Apple doesn't sell computers that way. The way that Apple sells computers is they say, we're challenging the status quo in everything we do. We think different. And then Cynic says, they buy why you do it, not what you do. And that's why you'll buy all kinds of devices from them. That's why people will camp out hours before the new thing came out because I believe what they believe. I want to challenge the status quo. I want to think different. Martin Luther King Jr. gives a speech. 
250,000 people come. They didn't even have a website. <laughs> no, you know, sign up genie or any of that kind of stuff. And how do they even know what time to show up? Where to go? 250,000 people, no one was sent an invitation. 25% of them were white. And Cynic says, he didn't give the I have a plan speech. So I have a dream. People believed what he believed. And then by word of mouth, they gathered together and no one came because it was him. And it was only, there were other people that had experienced what he had experienced. There were other great orators, but he wasn't talking about facts. Facts don't change our behavior. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, Cynic doesn't say this, but we, it doesn't matter what documentary they make, supersize me, your potatoes are made, or you know, some kind of crazy cream from Chernobyl, like whatever. You know McDonald's is not good for you. A billion of us, but no one here, will buy a burger tomorrow. Why? Because we want fast, we want cheap. We identify with their why, and we'll, so we'll take the what. Hmm. What's your why? God's told you your why. And your life is, it's Hugh Latimer, got it. You will be my witnesses. You're here to reflect him. You exist for his glory. But we get honed in. The distraction is actually, we start thinking our life is about our story. And it's, that's so small. The Bible says it's a vapor. Why would you want to live for something so small? We get distracted. We start thinking it's just about us. And it's just about this moment of pain or it's just about this thing. We, don't, we forget that we're part of a bigger story. It's actually his story. Jesus is the star. And the movie is, Come out with your hands out, not up. They're nailed to a cross. You're engraved on them. It's about relationship with him, and that's ultimately where satisfaction is found. Satisfaction, the, satis the security you're looking for, it's found in his hands. The, the significance you're looking for, found in his hands. The satisfaction you're looking for, it's found in his hands. Ecclesiastes 3.11, we all want it. Psalm 16, verse 11, pleasure, true joy, it's found in your presence. Do we believe that though? We all want it. We all want that pleasure. There's a couple other philosophers and thinkers and oh, just celebrities that have said these things. I have everything I ever wanted, but it doesn't mean I'm happy. Katy Perry. Fame doesn't fulfill you. It warms you a bit, but that warmth is temporary. Mm, Marilyn Monroe. Was she preaching this sermon? Oh. I've never felt so much emptiness and loneliness inside me as I do right now, despite all the fame and fortune, Justin Bieber. I quoted for you earlier, Brad Pitt, the things you own end up owning you. Julia Cameron says this, the thirst for desire, to have what you don't have, to be what you are not, is a universal human trait. She's right. And Jesus addresses it with a woman at the well in John chapter four, and he says, you have a thirst? I'm living water. In other words, he's saying, I'm what satisfies. Not all these men you're going to. I liked this one. Ariana Huffington, founder of Huffington Post. I couldn't find out what her faith is when I was Googling it, but listen to what she has to say. We all have a hunger in us, and it gnaws and grumbles until it's satisfied. But the hunger is not for food, nor for drink, nor for money, nor for power. It's for something deeper, something more profound, a sense of purpose, a feeling of belonging, a connection to something greater than ourselves? A hunger. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. Satisfaction is found in him. It's really interesting here in this passage that when Jesus cries out, he says, Father, 
That's intimate terminology. That was revolutionary for Jewish believers then. Father. It's not because Jesus hadn't used it before. It's because seconds before he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's becoming sin of the world. But then in a loud voice, surrendered, but not to the evil, to the Father. I only do what the Father tells me. We see this intimacy here. How can we have that? It's like other relationships. It takes proximity, vulnerability. Proximity means you need time together. You're going to be with each other in each other's presence. Vulnerability means you've got to let people see who you really are and see who they are. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes you don't like it. How? I was reading this week a story about the history of the Korean church. North and South Korea, by the way. We don't know how many believers there are in North Korea now because of the way society is, but we know that in Korea as a whole, in the early 1900s, there was 1% of the population were Christians. The story of Korea as a whole is that it was in the 1500s, there was a, a missionary named Robert Thomas who was on his way there, and as he was on his way there, Christianity was frowned upon, and they attacked his boat before he even got there. Killed him, threw the Bibles in the ocean. As they were throwing the Bibles in the ocean, they just cried out, Jesus, Jesus, as if they were getting rid of him. 1% of the population was Christian in the early 1900s, so hundreds of years later. And then there was a revival that broke out in 1907. The country was in struggling times, difficult times. The church was really struggling there. But this pastor's conference of 1,500 people in Pyeong, Korea, which is in North Korea today, had gathered together, and one pastor, unplanned, just started confessing his sin that he had been hiding from God and from others and, and then other people started doing it. Everybody started praying out loud together. Think about that, that might sound chaotic. But one pastor talks about what it sounded like. Let's read you his account and what he has to say. He says, the sound of many praying at once brought not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound. He said, the spirit made it sound like a mingling together of souls renewed by an irresistible impulse of prayer. He said, the prayer surrounded me like like falling waters might if you were in the ocean. He says, but these waves were crashing against God's throne. He says, just on the day of Pentecost, God came to us in Pyong that day, the sound of weeping. He says, as prayer continued, the spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came upon the whole audience and people began confessing their sins. Confession is not just saying that it happened, by the way. Confession is when you see your sin the way that God sees it. You say about it what he says is true about it. It's coming between you and him. It's quenching the spirit. It's, it's a problem. Then in the moment, there was a weeping of the whole audience. He says, man after man would rise and confess his sins, break down and cry and throw himself on the floor. And one man jumped up and he said, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? Yeah, that's the answer. This pastor doesn't say it, but that's the answer. But you didn't know the question. The answer is yes. Then he threw himself to the floor again and in agony and continued to confess. This went on until 2 o'clock in the morning. The pastors. Then for a couple days, then other people were added and it eventually spread to multiple towns. There's a Christian university started out of this. Churches started out of this. This is in 1907. 
today, like I said, we don't know how many believers there are in North Korea. I bet you will be surprised. But in South Korea, there are over 10 million followers of Jesus. So just over 100 years later, that's not a long time. 100 years? 10 million? Intimacy starts with that vulnerability and proximity. Satisfaction is found in his presence. Father, do you want him? Or do you have a better plan? Do you think you can be more secure? Let's pray. Father, I don't know what every person in this room is looking for. I don't know all their stages of life. I don't know if they can hear you asking. But will you pierce through the darkness of this dark world, this dangerous place where there's death, seemingly senseless crimes and tragedies and dead asphalt superintendents and, and wives hours after saying commitment of a lifetime and kids that just wanted to see their friends and eat lunch and play at recess. But you entered in and you became and you can use. And there are different people in this room going through different things, some great, some bad. Will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to that right now and draw people to you? What are you looking for? You know what's found in Jesus? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way to the Father. There's no other way. There's no other source of eternal satisfaction. Don't try to fulfill an eternal desire with temporary things. That's eternal emptiness. When you're in God's hands, you're under his protection and his direction. Will you put, like the psalmist says in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hands. Will you put your life into God's hands and let him direct and let him protect? And when things come through that aren't what you would want there, can you acknowledge that it, they passed through the hands of your loving father and that he must have a good plan even through this bad thing? That's easier to say than to do, so let you sit with that for a second. I'm not going to say amen. I'm going to let you stay in a spirit of prayer. We're going to stand and sing a song, and there are words here about Jesus dealing with the darkness. We'll say different words, but in your heart, I challenge you, only cry out the words if you're crying out to him, I want you. Fill me with your presence. Holy Spirit, fall upon me. Deal with whatever sin. Do whatever you need to do. I want you. God, we need you. At the very least, will you show each one of us what we're looking for today? And if we're not finding security in you and not finding satisfaction in you and not finding our significance in being united to you, will you, will you reveal that too? Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.